Good afternoon, happy Monday to all of you out there. Welcome to the Branching Factor podcast, episode 14. How are we on episode 14? There we go, episode 14 of the Branching Factor podcast. I'm your host, Tommy Thompson. Today, I am running the ship all by myself. The rest of the team is off and busy. And so I thought, I'm going to spend today talking about a bunch of stuff that I'm involved in, talk about some games that I'm playing talk about the news a little bit and hopefully we can continue all this and my internet will hold up throughout as we stream this over on Twitch. So yeah, it's been a very busy period. I hope you're all having a good start to the week wherever you are in the world. Surviving the Monday. We're uh, rounding out Monday here um, as we start up this episode of the Branching Factor podcast. And so yeah, I've got a lot of stuff I was just kind of unpacking. It's been a bit of a busy day for me um, over on the day-to-day of running AI in games and all that comes with it. Um, but yeah, I figured let's just get right into that. I'm going to talk about some games, but first, I guess, like kind of two things that I've been involved in that I wanted to share with you all today that I'm I'm really excited about. So let me just jump over here and show you what I've got. So if you're, don't worry, if you're listening to this this podcast, this audio format via Purely audio means, I will describe it, but also we've got it on screen for you, for those of you who are watching us live. Um, two things that are happening. Uh, first of all, I had a really good chat today with the organisers for the Artificial Intelligence and Games Summer School. So as many of you all know, I host the AI and Games YouTube channel and also run a company called AI and Games. And amongst all this, there is also the Artificial Intelligence and Games Summer School. This is a separate entity. Uh, it is not mine. I don't own it. But of course, um, it's something that I'm actually the organisers of the event are colleagues and friends of mine who I've known for a very long time. And it's always nice to be able to reach out and connect with them. Now, I had a chance to attend. The summer school has actually been running now for several years, I believe since 2018. So this year it's going to be running again um, out in Malta. Uh, on this, it's, yes, it's the sixth international summer school on artificial intelligence and games. It's going to be running in Valletta in Malta from the 17th to the 21st of June. And I had the chance to attend last year. Uh, it's a collection of talks, presentations, workshops, and more that is brought in, first of all, by the two lead organisers, uh, Drs. Julian Degelius and Yergos Yanakakis, who are kind of two of the foremost academics in sort of AI research around video games or games in general. And so they run a series of, uh, like I said, talks and what have you, but they also bring in a lot of people from across research, from across the games industry to talk about AI and the developments that they are doing. And it kind of helps give attendees uh, this kind of really nice spread of understanding of how this field is growing and is evolving. And I had a chance to attend last year because it ran, it's actually ran all over the world. It even ran remotely for a couple of years. But in 2023, it ran in Cambridge here in the UK, which uh, as someone who is London adjacent, that was actually pretty close to my stomping grounds. So I went over and checked it out. Uh, For those of you who follow along on YouTube, uh, where you're watching this episode of the podcast on AI and Games Plus, there was a dedicated video on the channel all about my time at the 2023 summer school and me sharing really what it's like to attend for a given week and what are the kind of talks that were being explored. So if you're interested in it, by all means, I'll stick the link in the description for this episode. So, you know, go and check it out and let and uh, that'll help paint a picture 
so yeah, the team is, they're starting the summer school again. They've got it up and running for 2024. Like I say, it's going to be running in Malta, which uh, for those of you who are not familiar, that is an island in the middle of the Mediterranean. Lovely little neck of the woods. So it's going to be running 17th to the 21st. I just had a meeting with Julian and Jergos today. Um, alongside David Melhard, who's also one of the organisers, uh, to confirm that I will be a part of the summer school once again this year. Uh, what I'm going to be doing is, well, we've got a rough idea, but no confirmation, nothing 100% today, but very excited to be a part of it. I was really, really excited to to participate last year. I helped run a panel and I ended up helping kind of run the game jam that runs towards the back end of the summer school. And it was nice to meet so many you know, new folk who are coming into the kind of AI and games space, be it as a researcher or as a developer. And yeah, it was it's such a nice environment to be out and a nice kind of culture to be a part of. And I was really happy to participate last year. So I'm very excited to be back this year and help contribute and support that uh, where and when I can. And uh, just a shout out on that note um, that if you head over to the website for the AI and Games Summer School. That's school.gameaibook.org. Again, I'll stick it in the show notes for you. Uh, they are currently open to registrations for this year's summer school. The early bird uh, closes on March 1st. I'll probably make a, a few more announcements to that effect in the coming weeks because I want people to turn up and participate and hopefully have a great time at the summer school. And then, hey, we'll even get to hang out a little bit while I'm there as well. The other thing that's been happening for me, which I was quite excited about, is, uh, as you can see on screen, actually in reference to a new book, and uh, I've actually got my own copy right here um, that was sent over by the publisher very late last week, uh, Game AI Uncovered, which is a new series of books which are going to be digging into how artificial intelligence is used in video games and it's a collection of different chapters from different authors from across the games industry, really just kind of highlighting um, their expertise and how they've used AI in a variety of titles. Just to read a little bit off of the back of the book here. Game AI Uncovered Volume 1, because there are multiple volumes that are going to be coming up, kicks off a brand new series of books that focus on the development of artificial intelligence in video games. This volume brings together the collected wisdom, ideas, tricks and cutting edge techniques from 20 of the top game AI professionals and researchers from around the world. The techniques discussed in these pages cover the underlying development of a wide array of published titles, including Hood, Outlaws and Legends, The Escapists 2, Sackboy, A Big Adventure, Call of Duty Strike Team, GTI Plus Club, Split Second, Sonic All-Star Racing Transformed, Luna Abyss, Medal of Honor Heroes 1 and 2, Age of Empires 4, Watch Dogs, Battlefield 2042, Plants vs. Zombies Battle for Neighborville, Dead Space, and more. So yeah, I think that's the hard sell. Um, this is very much, if you've ever been looking into textbooks around AI for video games, you might remember Game AI Pro, which was edited by Steve Rabin. Uh, who I work with over at the Game Developers Conference. He is one of the organisers, the, on the advisory board, rather, for the AI Summit. Um, this one, this series is being edited by Paul Roberts. And I want to give a shout out to Paul because I am, in fact, the author of the opening chapter of Game AI Uncovered Volume 1. Uh, Paul reached out to me a couple of years back and asked if I would be willing to put down some words to help paint a picture for people new to the book to understand what's actually going on in and around the world of AI for video games. And so, yeah, let me just stick that on the camera for you. Uh, 
You can see it. There we go. The Changing Landscape of AI for Game Development by yours truly, Dr. Tommy Thompson. Uh, a real privilege to be a part of this. And I'm super excited uh, for everyone else um, who's... I've already started having a read through the book. I'm really enjoying it. I'm beginning to think some of this stuff is going to turn into an episode of AI and Games at some point down the line. Uh, you can get your own copy if you're interested in getting a copy of Game AI Uncovered. The, the book will launch on February 23rd. And again, I'll stick some links in the show notes for you. So uh, I feel like I've finished um, selling everything that I had to sell this week. But first of all, very excited to be a part of the AI and Game Summer School once again this year for 2024. And also very excited for the Game AI Uncovered book coming out at the end of the month. But yeah, all right, enough about that. Let's talk about some video games. So yeah, I've been gaming quite a bit. Uh, actually, there's a whole bunch of stuff I've been playing that I can't talk about because it's actually directly related to um, upcoming episodes of AI and games. So we'll keep those quiet and secret for now. But uh, one of the things I did want to talk about is, so a couple of things. First of all, and I've listed them on the screen actually for you, is that first of all, I have been playing a lot of The Evil Within, which is actually being live streamed across Twitch and AI and games plus. Uh, for those not familiar, the, AI, the Evil Within is developed, published by Tango Gameworks, came out in, I think it was 2012, 2014, something like that. I should look that up before I start uttering gibberish. And uh, 2014, yes. The key thing about The Evil Within is it's directed by Shinji Mikami, uh, who was the director of both Resident Evil, he essentially created the Resident Evil franchise, but was also the director of Resident Evil 4. So probably two of the most important titles in that series uh, were both developed uh, by Mikami-san. And this is a, it's such a weird and eclectic game. If you're interested, I would encourage you to go back and look at the streams that we've been running. Um, so they don't stay up, I think, forever on Twitch, but they are over on AI and Games Plus on YouTube. It's such a weird game. It's it's you could feel the DNA of Resident Evil in it, but it's also a game that seems to be playing around and toying with so many different ideas. And I'm not entirely sure it all clicks together in a way that really makes sense. But um, yeah, go and check it out. We're still a few. I think we're still a couple of hours away from finishing the episode. The the game as a whole. Go by by all means. Go and check out the streams and let us know what you think of it. Uh, checking it out. Um, the other game, quickly to mention, is because of the recent release of Tekken 8, I realised I actually own Tekken 7 and I've never played it. So I booted that up um, in the last couple of weeks. And as somebody who is, for those of you who are watching uh, the video version, you'll notice I have a Marvel vs. Capcom 2 arcade unit here in my office. I'm a big fan of 2D fighting games, particularly a lot of the 90s Capcom like CPS2 games, so the Street Fighter Alpha series, the Marvel Versus series, and just generally a fan of Street Fighter in general. But also, you know, things like Mortal Kombat and Killer Instinct and King of Fighters and the like. 3D fighting games have always been something I struggle with, always something I'm not entirely convinced by. And so I thought, right, I need to give this a shot. And I don't really know what's going on in Tekken. It's such a weird and eclectic game. But it's, it, I think there's something very satisfying in its combat when it works. It feels like it's a little bit easier to pick up and play. But I, interestingly, like while I think that is the case, I also struggle 
my 2D fighting game brain always struggles to reconcile how this should all work alongside the like what's the deeper more richer aspect of its fighting like the, un- the underlying systems in it I never quite are able to successfully grasp I think because my brain is wired in a 2D fighting game way and yeah Tekken doesn't really work like any of those other games although funnily enough um, even though there's on the screen right now the, the the game art has two main characters whose names I couldn't remember all I know is they keep beating each other up to try and run a company and something about throwing each other into a volcano I think that's what Tekken's about. But funnily enough, they've been adding guest fighters uh, into Tekken 7. Um, Much like every other fighting game, I think at one point was adding guest fighters. And two of the big fighters that they added is Geese from Fatal Fury and Akuma from Street Fighter. And so funnily enough, I've had more... I've spent more time playing this and had more fun playing this by actually playing as characters from non-Tekken franchises and then trying to use them as my gateway into um, <laughs> into Tekken. It's such a bizarre thing. But yeah, I've actually probably spent more time playing as Akuma in Tekken 7 than any other character. And I feel that's helping me acclimatise to the Tekken environment, uh, even though um, he still actually has a lot of his moveset from... Street Fighter, and they've simply kind of found a way to transpose that into 3D fighting. I don't know. There's a story mode in it. I'm going to give it a shot, see how it turns out. All right. The other quick thing I wanted to talk about before I got into the two meaty games that I've been, well, the two games I've been playing, they're not meaty, but I've been playing them at length, is first of all, I was checking out Lights Out, which is a special modifier in Dead by Daylight. Dead by Daylight, if you're not familiar, is the 4v1 survival horror multiplayer game where you have four people going around as survivors trying to evade one player who is the killer who is trying to kill you. And during Dead by Daylight, a big part of it is using different perks and abilities and items and add-ons that give you a special you know, advantage in key scenarios. And so you might have an item that allows you to find... Uh, windows to jump through as a survivor or pallets that you can knock down and block the path of the killer or even stun them if you time it right or even things like it allows you to see the killer in certain contexts in a distance or it gives you better warning of where the killer is and critically in amongst all this there is a um, terror radius so whenever you're playing as the survivor you can hear a heartbeat that gets louder and louder as the killer gets closer to you And so there's all these different facets that both killers and survivors can use to give themselves an advantage in key scenarios. So Lights Out is a modifier that strips all of that out of the game. And thus far, I found it... I I was really curious because there's no... like First of all, as it's implied, it's now played in the dark. You only maybe have about 10 feet of visibility in all directions. You don't have any items, you don't have any perks, you don't have any bonuses. And also they remove the terror radius. So it's very stripped down. It's like it's almost like you're playing a heavily modded version of the game during early development. Like they, they somebody went in and deleted all the baked lighting out of the game or something like that. And it's interesting and also incredibly frustrating so as someone who doesn't really have a lot of friends who play uh dead by daylight i play solo queue so i go in and matchmake as an individual um survivor and trying to escape as a single player has been 
next to impossible. I've managed to get out using the hatch, which is the special exit that only opens when the rest of your team dies. I've not actually been able to get to a point where we repair all of the generators, the five generators, which are the key objective of the game, and then subsequently get out of an exit gate and escape. I also then actually played it as a killer, and that was unfair. Because interestingly, because now players don't know, like, so survivors can't tell where the killer is, but the killer can still see superimposed on their HUD where all the generators are that the survivors might be trying to repair. And so while you have the same limitation, you can't really use any perks or add-ons or abilities, you know where the five, the seven generators are on the map. And so you think, right, well, I'm just going to patrol around these because I'm bound to fight, bump into someone. And because the visibility is so poor, it's very rare that a survivor actually sees you until it's too late. Um, I played first as uh, the nemesis from Resident Evil, and that actually was quite interesting because zombies appear in the map for you, and then sometimes that was catching people out. But then I also played around as the xenomorph, um, the alien, and I'm pretty sure I scared the living shit out of a couple of people with that because the alien can crawl on all fours and I was sneaking up on people and they can't hear me coming and they can't see me coming and then suddenly there's an alien next to them while they're trying to repair gens. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I, I freaked a couple of people out. That special event, I think, ends tomorrow or the day after. It's only running for like one week in the game. It was an interesting experiment. I don't think it's worth keeping in its current form. Probably the game that well, one of the two games I've played the most in the last couple of weeks since our last episode is Suicide Squad Kills the Justice League. This is the new game by Rocksteady, developers of the Batman Arkham franchise. And it's a game that has uh, ha had a lot of um, media around it. There's been a lot of story surrounding the development of this game. Uh, so, of course, it's been seven years since the last release uh, from Rocksteady. And it's quite telling or rather I think it's rather a reflection of the current state of where we are in the industry that a game such as this which is a live service shooter uh, a loot shooter as well in which players will you know race around complete missions in order to get better gear and better equipment people have been less than enthusiastic about a game like this particularly coming from a studio like Rocksteady who have shown quite competently over the years that they are a very good studio in terms of crafting independence, well, rather developing single-player story-driven content, which is very much what they've done up to this point uh, with the Batman Arkham series. And so Suicide Squad takes place in the same universe as Batman Arkham. It takes place, I think, five years after the end of Arkham Knight. And is largely, well, as the name implies, the Suicide Squad are sent out to kill the Justice League, which the Justice League is like the, you know, if you're not familiar, the big superhero group of Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, The Flash, Green Lantern, etc. And so in this interpretation, uh, the Suicide Squad have been sent to Metropolis, the home of Superman, because, well, the, the Justice League had been corrupted and became evil. Uh, as a result of the invasion of Earth of Earth by Brainiac, who is like a big bad of the DC universe. And so this game's really all about, you can either play it single player or you can play it with others, going out as a squad of four characters to complete missions, earn gear, level up, 
progress the story as well. So there is a main story component to it, and that only lasts, I believe, I've been told about nine to twelve hours before it opens up and then allows for the actual real life service component of the game. I've not got that far yet. I'm probably about a third of the way through the story, and uh, as the name implies, we kill the Justice League. I can confirm we be killing some of the Justice League in this game. I. Th- It's a difficult one to really unpack. So Suicide Squad, as a game, there's a lot of it that works really well. There's uh, the open world design, being able to move around Metropolis, the mobility of your characters is really satisfying. So you can play as one of the four members of Suicide Squad. So that's Deadshot, uh, King Shark, Harley Quinn, or Captain Boomerang. And each of them has their own unique... Uh, movement ability. Uh, Deadshot has a jetpack. Harley Quinn has kind of stolen a um, grapple hook that Batman would use. Uh, Captain Boomerang has actually got a boomerang which has been infused with the Speed Force because if you're not familiar, Captain Boomerang is a Flash villain and so he can then run or even like kind of teleport short distances and he can run fast. And King Shark is a giant anthropomorphized muscly shark. So he just jumps around a lot like he's the Hulk. And I have to say that's probably one of the best parts of the core loop of playing the game is the mobility is really satisfying. Moving around Metropolis is good fun. The actual combat is very much gun-based. And I think this is probably one of the areas that the game struggles a little bit is that each of the characters don't really have their own identity, don't really have a, a way to differentiate themselves from one another. They each have their own special moves but all of their special moves are variations of the same core thing. So all of them have an area of effect attack that they can do when landing on a building, that, or on the surface of a building, they can attack a lot of things in short and quick proximity. There's also like a sort of quick kill, super death um, special ability that each of them can do as well. They're all different animations, but they all achieve ultimately the same thing. And each of them has their own talent trees that allow them to Uh, sort of maximise certain aspects of their behaviour, whether it's in terms of movement, whether it's damage, whether it's damage reduction, shield regeneration, etc. But in terms of the moment-to-moment combat, there's not really anything that differentiates them from one another outside of their movement. You can equip the same weapons um, by and large, and even then, like, characters who you think, oh, well, these are different supervillains their ability, like they don't really have anything unique that helps them stand out. Compare this to, say, Square Enix's Avengers game from a couple of years ago. It's kind of the inverse. I found the Avengers game was very unsatisfying to move around in, but each of the characters was distinct enough that they had different play styles and it meant playing as Iron Man, for example, versus Captain America or Thor was a very, very different experience and you could lean towards playing as one character over another. That said, I do think that the combat is more satisfying than the Avengers. I found that the the Avengers game was quite lackluster. And I think overall as a package, I think the Suicide Squad is a better game. The graphical presentation is stronger and and it's overall more consistent. I think the writing in Suicide Squad is actually probably the strongest part. Uh, You can tell that Rocksteady, this is a studio who have previously made games based in and around the DC Universe. They understand this material really well. They understand the characters really well. 
and the writing of all the individual Suicide Squad members, as well as the Justice League, as well as a lot of extra DC characters who you would expect to see turning up, either because you're in Metropolis or it's the Suicide Squad. I won't spoil who turns up. But there's a lot of it that is very on point, and I thought that was quite satisfying. So the actual story I'm quite enjoying. It's it's also quite funny. The character, Like I say, the characters are pretty well fleshed out. They banter, they argue with each other. And the game actually does this thing that um, reminds me of the uh, Guardians of the Galaxy game in which you can complete a mission or an objective and then the characters will talk about what they just did or talk about story beats that are happening with each other throughout the game. And it does a really good job of having a lot of fresh dialogue between characters without also then making it too repetitive. It's not like you hear the same uh, canned exchanges all that often. In fact, it's I've heard only, I think, maybe some of them repeated a couple of times. But by and large, like the dialogue that's rolling out as the game progresses is evolving in, in line with the story, which I thought was really cool. But, yeah, like I think the thing that doesn't really mesh with it is the combat just doesn't make each of these characters feel satisfyingly individual. And as a result, you're then thinking, well, it's it, actually it just kind of feels like much of a muchness. So a lot of the encounters don't really feel as if playing as one character over the other really gives you a particular advantage, nor does it make it more interesting to play with someone else where, say, I'm King Shark and I then play off against them who's Deadshot. We're not using abilities in a way that will allow us to complement one another because there's not really any mechanism for that. Is it a bad game? No, I don't think so. I think it's it's a perfectly competent game, but it's also a game that really doesn't need to exist in the format that it is. I haven't seen anything yet to suggest why it's a live service game, why it's a looter shooter. There's nothing in it really to make that uh, justification as far as I'm concerned. Perhaps something happens towards the end of the story that makes it, and because really the kind of the, the campaign is more or less sort of the tutorial to get you into the game as it gradually introduces new mechanics and systems the longer you go. You know, I'm still having things, uh, new layers of mechanics and dynamics being introduced five hours into the game, I think, at this point. But ultimately, I don't really feel like what I'm playing is justifies the direction that they've taken it. And I think that also explains an awful lot of the justifiable criticism um, that the game has received, but also the studio has, or not not so much the studio, I think, but the publisher has received, that this is a game that feels like it has been brought down um, from on high, saying we need a live service game. And so, lo and behold, we have a live service game, which ultimately, I think, for many, we would rather have seen Rocksteady do something else that is very much in keeping with their strengths. And so, funnily enough, I think everything that is really good about Suicide Squad is everything that you have you have seen previously from Rocksteady. Core combat movement mechanics feels good. Story is good. Presentation is good. But the larger live servicey elements of it, no, doesn't really stack up. And that's a shame. Um, I am still having a good time playing it. I'm going to keep going and see if I can finish it off in the next week or so. But yeah, it, 
I think also I was reading that the that the sales of the game have not done terribly well out the gate, which is a real shame. Um, comparing it very much to you know it's ha- had less than the day one numbers on Steam, less than half of what Avengers had on Steam, and that is, I think perhaps a reflection not on the game but where we are, um, with the state of the industry and just general apathy among consumers for live service games. We don't need, there's, there's, as we've seen already in the last year or so, there's been a shrinking of the number of live service games that are out there. And that's largely because they're very, very difficult to put out. They're difficult to maintain. They're difficult to satisfy an audience who is going to watch them. And so, yeah, it doesn't surprise me that it's kind of, it's not really had a particularly strong launch, whether or not it does better over time will remain to be seen, but I'm pretty sure that for uh, Warner Brothers games in particular, this will be a bit of a disappointment for them, given that they've had Rocksteady working on this for seven years. But the thing is, again, <clears throat> it's fine. It's a perfectly fine game. It's It actually reminds me, per the title of this um, this podcast, it feels a lot to me like Sunset Overdrive meets Crackdown in the term of vibe and overall feel of the game. And so I'm generally having a good time with it, and I really want to keep going and finish it, but it feels like it's been built to cater to an audience that doesn't really exist and doesn't wasn't really looking for that type of live service game. I feel like there could have been a stronger multiplayer game built around this that didn't have the live service trappings. But hey, it's 2024. That's, that's, that's where we are. Speaking of, the, the last game, I think, on my list uh, that I wanted to talk about was Helldivers 2. So this also came out just last week. And yeah, Helldivers is a really interesting um, value proposition. It's another live service shooter, but it is built around being a cooperative shooter in which you, as one of numerous um very democracy, or democracy in inverted commas, um, democracy-wielding soldiers of victory will fly out across the universe and fight giant insects in order to defend the planet. It's very much got this um, tongue-in-cheek approach to having players go out and fight across the universe. And it's, it's very much reminiscent of things like Starship Troopers. It's it's playing to that audience, and I think it's playing to it very well. Um, in fact, I was very interested in it because I'm a fan of Earth Defense Force, which is a rather kind of cheesy um, B game property that comes out of Japan. Whereas this is much more; it's a PlayStation published title, and you can tell it has PlayStation polish. It has PlayStation production value behind it. <coughs> Excuse me. So, the general uh, ethos of Helldivers Two is that you. Dive, you you will land on different planets as a team of up to four players and you complete missions. And more often than not, those missions are quite straightforward of defending locations, attacking insect nests, uh, destroying uh, destroying other objectives that you find in the world. And each player can carry two guns and then as well as that, they can deploy in a third weapon. So every player will have their loadout and their loadout allows them to deploy what are called stratagems. And so that allows you to 
bring in either heavy artillery or like supporting equipment, like reload caches, health caches, new like heavy weapons. Um, you can have them deployed with a timer delay. And they have to recharge before you can deploy them again onto the surface of the planet. So it might be that the three of three or four of you are running around and you're fighting off waves of enemies, you're running low on ammo, so one of you deploys a stratagem with a re- or resupply unit on it. So everyone can get fresh ammo and they can be ready for the fight. Or you may be thinking, we need some help to quell the number of monsters that are charging us. And so you might deploy a stratagem, which is an orbital strike. Massive, you know, missile payload that hits the ground. Um, just recently, I unlocked the ability to deploy napalm. Um to the thing and uh myself and and i think this is one of the things that works really well is that each player can customize their weapons you can customize your stratagems so you can each have different uh particular direction that you're catering towards and so i was playing this at the weekend and it was very satisfying when we we would trigger the objective we see a bunch of aliens coming in the horizon running towards us in this third person shootery game that we're playing (coughs) and um (laughs) my teammate would deploy an orbital strike and then i would immediately after it deploy a napalm strike and so we'd see all this wave of enemies coming towards us huge explosion number one then huge explosion number two and then another teammate deploys a resupply and a heavy weapon and then we just pin down we just dig in and we start laying waste to armies upon armies of giant insects and giant bugs very satisfying um i'm having a blast with this so far it's crossplay between pc and uh ps5 though word of warning it does have uh, some rather nasty drm anti-cheat on the pc version so you might want to deploy a vm to enable you to play the game if you so wish but um i'm having a blast with this it has been so much fun and uh, i can't wait to dig into it some more um so yeah um it also it did get a bit of a mixed uh review on steam at release partially due to the drm but also it's quite microtransaction heavy um but the microtransactions are predominantly around battle passes that you have to un you then have to unlock through play to achieve new cosmetics and so most of the weapons that you're getting uh, you can get weapons in this in the in the the battle pass but by and large you can also craft those externally or attain them through mission completion elsewhere as well as um a lot of cosmetic stuff and it's already quite fun to have different outfits and different stances and different emotes and everything else um i think if you enjoy third person cooperative shooting that requires a bit of collaboration it requires some tactical decision making um, but also you just like the idea of shooting off waves of giant monsters with guns and increasingly more elaborate guns and then increasingly more elaborate heavy artillery. You're going to love this game. I, I found it really interesting in not just how it makes that a really satisfying experience for players, but also there's a lot of interesting tactical decisions laced throughout it. So the stratagem, for example, you have to bring up the HUD and then type in a specific command, which is actually done on the D-pad if you're using a pad. And it means that you can't shoot and call on a stratagem at the same time. You have to make the decision to back off and bring up your pad and then dial in the stratagem. Similarly, your weapons, when you reload a gun, you actually throw away any leftover ammo that was in the clip that you just had equipped. So, for example... 
if you were playing the game, if you were actually, if you sh- kill a, uh, a bug and you only used maybe five to ten rounds of your clip, which had 30 rounds in it, and then you decide to reload, you're throwing away 20 rounds. You don't get them back. And you have a limited number of uh, clips that you can carry at any one time. And so even the thing of like what weapon you're using in a particular moment, whether you reload the weapon or whether you swap the weapon, all of these things are increasingly um, key decisions that the player has to make themselves. You have to be thinking very carefully about what you're doing in the moment and not just like mindlessly mowing down enemies. Because if you're not really thinking about what you're doing in the heat of the moment, you'll die pretty quickly. Not to mention that friendly fire is enabled in the game. It's very easy for your teammates to kill you if you accidentally get in front of their line of fire. Or actually, one of the things that has been happening is we were deploying a stratagem that has a turret. The turret auto locks on to play it to enemies that are nearby. But if you're standing between the turret and the enemy, you'll get killed by your own turret. Now, if you're playing in multiplayer, you get to be redeployed. Your teammates can then uh, basically call in a stratagem which allows you to spawn back in. But again, they have to make the effort to stop fighting and bring up the stratagem pad to dial in the request to then actually uh, redeploy you. So there's all these really interesting design decisions laced around making key decisions in key moments. And as someone who is, one, really enjoys cooperative uh, PvE shooters, I found that really interesting. But also as someone who really enjoys Earth Defence Force, this is a whole layer of tactical complexity that EDF doesn't have. And so I'm excited because EDF 6 finally gets its Western release in next month on PlayStation. I think it might be coming to Steam around the same time. Hopefully it is. But I thought, oh, this might be something that will tide me over until EDF 5 comes out. I'm now actually thinking it's probably going to be something extra that's going to uh, play alongside EDF, I think, in, in the coming weeks and months. And yeah, um, I had a good shout, uh, shout out to Jamie and Stuart, who I played the game with. Um, at the weekend, funnily enough, uh, more of my friends have subsequently um, went out and bought the game since then, and they've been talking about playing it with me as well. Uh, who knows? We might even get a chance to to stream it or something like that on uh, Twitch and YouTube. Maybe that'd be that'd be worth uh, checking out and doing. Right. Okie doke. Let's see. Where are we? We're doing good for time. Let's get into the news. I'm going to have a little drink here, but let's start talking about some news. So yeah, I wanted to go through a couple of news stories, kind of talk a little bit about that. Generally, just get a, give us keep us all up to speed with what's going on in the round games. And no doubt, actually, some of these things we'll probably talk about some more when George and the gang are back with us on the podcast in the next few weeks. So first of all, um, a story that was a little disappointing to hear. Uh, Spec Ops The Line, a game developed by Jaeger uh, and published by 2K, was recently delisted by Steam. Um, Not by Steam, on Steam, rather. It's also now delisted on all other major storefronts. So if you wanted to buy the game digitally on PC, on Xbox or on PlayStation, you are out of luck. This game is no longer available. Yeah, so Spec Ops is... It's been around for a long time. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head when this game came out. I'm going to briefly look that up. I want to say around 2012, maybe. Um, yes, 2012. 
And one of the things that Spec Ops The Line wasn't a massive critic, it wasn't a massive commercial success, but it was a bit of a critical darling. And a big part of that was due to, it is a very um, nuanced uh, take on the horrors of war. It is a third person shooter that actually tries to really get into the, the complexities of what happens when you actually send people out into complex scenarios, complex, like real world scenarios in which multiple uh, groups of people are fighting for survival in a horrendous situation and the realities of taking, of every action that you take. Um, It is one of, it's certainly one of my favourite games of the Xbox 360 and PS3 era. It has a much more mature look at military combat in video games than most other games of their ilk ever really take it. You know, Call of Duty, I think in particular, is a fun franchise, but its politics is very, very lax. Let's put it that way. It has a very um, Michael Bay approach to politics in the theatre of war. Spec Ops doesn't really shy away from some of the the more destructive and horrific themes that come with this sort of with this sort of material. And of course, you know, talking about that sort of level of um, deconstruction of war is something that's quite common in literature, it's common in film, it's even common in music. We don't have an awful lot of video games that explore that sort of thing. Um, you know, things like This War of Mine, uh, perhaps, is a really good example. Spec Ops is one of the few that is actually a third-person shooter that is trying to de- uh, that is a military third-person shooter that then tries to tackle these 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 themes. And it's a very cool game. It was actually, in fact, episode 29 of my YouTube series, AI and Games, as I explained how the AI works in it after interviewing uh, one of the developers, Jörg Reisig. So it's now delisted in all storefronts, which is a real shame. And uh, a big part of that, no doubt, is due to the music licensing, because the game has a soundtrack that includes the likes of Jimi Hendrix, Mogwai, Deep Purple, Alice in Chains, and Bjork off the top of my head. And so that'll be it, that... When these games get developed, they have a license for that music, which will only last in a certain amount of time. And so then the big question is, when those music licenses lapse, do you relicense them at a great expense, or do you try and find a way to remove them? Now, this is something that a lot of other games have tackled with over the years. <clears throat> you know, things like the Forza series will have music patched out of it, or even Grand Theft Auto has had music patched out of it because the music license expires. But of course, the open question is, well, then if you if you were going to even keep the music, do you think that the investment in getting that music in there is worthwhile? That's always the big problem, because if it isn't really worth the expenditure, then why go ahead with it? If you don't think you're going to get, you know, make further revenue from the game down the line. And Spec Ops is so old at this point, it's 12 years old. People aren't rushing out to buy it. And even if they are, they're not going to make huge bank on it at this point. Like the bulk of its sales are long past gone. And I think even then the question would even be, well, do we go back and rework it? But then that's extra work for a 12-year-old game. Are you going to go and find someone at Jaeger to crack open this project and then rip that music out and replace it? That's extra development work. So as disappointing as it is, I totally understand that the commercial reality of it for the publisher is it's actually easier for us to just pull the game rather than try and rework the game to accommodate for this new licensing scenario. But yeah, if you have a chance to play it, um, and if you can get a hold of a copy of it if you don't have one already, 
then give it a shot. I think Spec Ops is is really fun, or it's really interesting, and I look forward to it. I'm going to actually go back and, and stream it again at some point in the future. Um, next up, I just wanted to give a quick mention to the, when George was on with me a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about gaming layoffs, and we've not had... It's It's been relatively quiet, but it is still ongoing. In fact, at the time of writing or preparing for this uh, podcast, it, a minimum of 250 people have been laid off in the games industry since the last episode, uh, and this included the folks from the likes of Eidos Montreal, Rovio Montreal, Cloud Imperium, and Hidden Path Entertainment. The total number is unclear because a lot of companies will not give final figures on how many people that they have let go. But we are continuing to see after the big boom, first with Riot and then with Microsoft, Activision Blizzard King, we're continuing to see layoffs happening throughout the industry. I suspect we're going to see more of them and probably another big, as, as much as I, I love to, to, to think this might be the case, I suspect we're going to see a big uh, one or two big stories of this ilk probably in the next month or so before the end of the fiscal year. Anyway, uh, best of luck to everyone out there. Um, also, if you're in, in the round UK and Europe, by all means, check out uh, George's uh, Substack, the Video Games Industry Memo, the VGIM, because he's been trying to share um, a lot of uh, jobs where and when he can. And uh, also, we're trying to share stuff around either in my Discord or in a few other communities as well. So if you have jobs that you want people to find out about, um, by, all, by all means, reach out to myself and George. Or if you're looking for one, also look out in those spaces as well. Probably the biggest story that's been brewing um, since I was on the podcast bank with George a couple of weeks ago is the what is reportedly the case that Microsoft are considering bringing a lot of their first-party IPs and titles to other platforms, most notably PlayStation. So the good Jeff Grubb over at the Giant Bombcast and um, Game Mess Mornings was shared this uh, a week or so ago in which the Microsoft is reportedly looking into bringing Gears of War and other IPs such as Hi-Fi Rush and Sea of Thieves um, to other platforms, most notably the Sony PlayStation, but probably also uh, Nintendo Switch. And in some cases, PC, if they aren't already on PC, although I think most of these actually are. There's an official announcement that's going to be coming um, from Microsoft, in fact, this week. So by the time that this airs, we may, who knows, um, we might have uh, already heard something. Let me just quickly double check the news and see if anything has uh, actually dropped in the time in between. But no, we have not heard anything just yet. Uh, so Phil Spencer has actually been on the rounds a little bit trying to temper the the furore that has kicked up around this on social media, uh, particularly at one point, because Phil's going to come out and give this whole thing about the vision of the future for Xbox. And I think a lot of people were concerned about whether or not they were going to stick it out and continue to actually release content or actually maintain their hardware. So if you're now got... Uh, Microsoft looking to put all their other IP, whether it's Gears of War, whether it's Halo, whatever, on PlayStation. What is the value proposition of having an Xbox at this point? And so, of course, a lot of people who own Xboxes and are particularly tied up in the console war ideology have been really upset by that. 
um, particularly if they've backed having an Xbox over, say, a PlayStation, and now they're thinking, well, maybe I should have just got a PlayStation if all these games are going to come over to that platform. Some people are being rational about it. A lot of people are not, because for some reason, tribalism among games platforms still exists in 2024, but there you go. So, none of this should be a surprise to anyone. And I also think that an awful lot of the takes that we are seeing out there are horribly misguided. So, first and foremost, I think it's really important to give context to where Microsoft is in and around games. Xbox overall is currently... Um, the most lucrative element of Microsoft's entire portfolio. Uh, in fact, actually, George was talking about this over on VGIM, that in Q2, the Q2 financials for the 2024 uh, financial year, $7.1 billion of revenue for Microsoft came from the games division. And a big part of that was not just everything they already had on Xbox, but because they just bought Activision Blizzard King, which then brings in, of course, big revenue courtesy of the likes of Call of Duty. $7.1 billion, right? Now, put that in context. Windows, which of course you think Microsoft, Windows-related products, that is, you know, their operating system and the software that all comes with that for running Windows PCs, you would think that is their biggest area. Typically it is. However, uh, in the, those last fiscal results, it was only at $5.26 billion. So games right now are the biggest revenue draw for Microsoft's entire corporation. You've got to unpack that. This is a massive tech corporation for whom gaming is now their biggest source of revenue. And in fact, they expect it to grow a further 40% year over year, what with new titles coming out across um, Activision Blizzard King, but also they've got new stuff coming out of uh, Bethesda, uh, and they've also got more stuff. Um, they've just generally got more Xbox titles coming out over the next year. To suggest that they are going to walk away from their Xbox brand and platform, I think at this point is disingenuous. But are they going to continue to spread the Xbox platform as much as they possibly can or Microsoft's gaming provision? Absolutely. We've seen this already with PC. A few years ago, we didn't really see Microsoft in the PC space as much. They had had things like gaming for Windows for many years, which didn't really pan out. And then they had a, some of their games come out on PC as well as Xbox. But by and large, they'd been focusing on their Xbox output with a handful of PC titles or franchises that are more focused in that space. Um, Age of Empires, for example. With Game Pass over the last few years as their new subscription model, We've seen that this is their change of tack. They've recognised that essentially during the Xbox One PS4 era, they lost the console race, as it were. PlayStation continues to sell two to three to one in terms of boxes sold and put underneath people's televisions. And so they were the last, that was really the last console war that was going on because, of course, you say that, oh, PlayStation is selling hand over fist. You forget Nintendo is over in the corner uh, currently with the second most successful console of all time. And with fantastic software sales, Nintendo play by their own rulebook. They don't really care what's happening with Sony and Microsoft by and large. And they actually have a pretty good working relationship, um, in my understanding, with the likes of Microsoft. Nintendo don't really care what they're doing. And I think what happened was even um, place, uh, Sony, uh, 
Xbox themselves, Microsoft, realised we can't continue to have this fight because it is a dwindling race to the bottom. If you see now with actually with Sony, one of the problems that they've had is that they are now locked in on very big budget single player experiences. Uh, even most recently, things like Spider-Man 2, which apparently is going to be at the moment a commercial failure in the eyes of Sony because it hasn't sold as many units as they hoped because it had a roughly $350 million production budget behind it, which was something that was revealed courtesy of the, sadly, due to the, the leaks that happened um, uh, Insomniac. So we've got a situation in which PS5 is very much focused on big budget single player experiences. They're now trying to move into live service uh, with the recent acquisition of Bungie because they're trying to find other ways to bring in revenue. And they're in a very similar position to Microsoft because PlayStation right now is the most lucrative aspect of Sony's corporation. You know, their TVs, laptops and all that other stuff doesn't make as much money as it used to. They're, even their film productions aren't doing as great. For the last couple of years, gaming has been what has really held uh, Sony aloft. Now, it's not to say that Microsoft is in a similar situation, but they have aggressively bought up an awful lot of studios and licenses and publishing and they're trying to find ways to maximise revenue. And they've already been doing this on PC. We saw this with Game Pass Ultimate. More and more games come in day and date to PC, getting proper Windows support, but also that they started moving more and more games onto Steam. Sea of Thieves is available on Steam. You can get Halo Infinite and the Halo Master Chief Collection on Steam. They've not been as protective and like forcing people onto the Windows Store anymore because they realised that was a losing battle. So instead, they're bringing their games to consumers on other platforms, on other distributions, on other storefronts. Um, so there you go. You've got the Xbox ecosystem, and that is for people who want a box under their television. They're selling you games. They're giving you Game Pass, first-party exclusives available day and date. Then they have PC. All right, okay, cool. You can do the same thing on PC, Xbox Game Pass Ultimate. But if you don't want to buy into that ecosystem, you can still buy Sea of Thieves on Steam. You can buy Halo Infinite on Steam if you want. We've heard rumblings over time about whether they're going to do the same thing on the Switch, trying to put Game Pass on the Switch or trying to put other games on the Switch. They've already done it. You know, Don't forget that things when they bought um, Bethesda, Things like Deathloop and Ghostwire Tokyo were PlayStation uh, timed exclusives, or they were, I don't even know whether they were actually originally exclusives, but they came out on PlayStation first and then they made their way onto Xbox eventually. Um, Major League Baseball is actually published by Microsoft, even though it's a PlayStation um, title. And then, of course, Minecraft. Minecraft is on everything. <clears throat> so think about that's been what they've done thus far. Then they buy Microsoft, then they buy Activision, AB, you know, ABK. Activision Blizzard King. King is essentially their route into getting into the mobile space. They're going to be able to have their own mobile storefront pretty soon selling um, Microsoft-owned mobile games, even free-to-play games which have microtransactions laced throughout them, like Candy Crush over at King. They're moving into mobile. They've began to creep into PC. Well, they've actually moved more pervasively into PC in a way that they haven't been historically. The next step is really to take it all further. Why not just put these other IPs, these other licenses onto PlayStation, onto um, Switch? And the thing is, they're already in a situation where there's a very inconsistent rollout because part of the Activision purchase was the suggestion of anti-competitive behaviour because they were then going to pull Call of Duty from PlayStation when let's, we're now actually in the opposite scenario. The story now is that they're going to do something 
the other way. They're going to do the other thing. They're going to completely go 180 on that suggestion. And that makes sense. They spent a lot of money on it. They know PlayStation is the primary platform for so many people to play Call of Duty. So of course we're going to keep selling Call of Duty to them. So the next step is, well, why don't we put everything else on it? If if people are already going to buy Call of Duty, why don't we get them to buy Starfield? Why don't we get them to buy Sea of Thieves? Why don't we get them to buy the new Indiana Jones that's coming out by Machine Games? Or the new Hellblade that's coming out? Naturally, this makes people upset because if you buy an Xbox, one of the things is, well, you're getting these games because you invested in that ecosystem. And critically, I think one of the the concerns that a lot of people have is that, you know, they've stuck by Xbox during a period in which a lot of games weren't really coming out. A lot of games have been delayed. Fable, naturally, is a really good example. That's been delayed many times. We still don't have a release date for that. Um, you know, Forza Motorsport, the reboot of that took a long time to come to the to the Xbox platform. They've had a bit of a dry spell in terms of exclusives that would justify coming to the Xbox platform. And that's why people kept buying it. That's why they really invested in getting good third-party titles on Game Pass. Because, hey, with the subscription, it's a cost-effective thing. You can come in, you can play all these games for like however many dollars a month it is. I forget how much. So then you feel a little jilted if suddenly Gears of War is going to end up on PS5 when you were sticking around for Gears of War on your Xbox. Does it mean that they're going to launch things day and date? I don't think so. Does it mean that Game Pass is going to exist on those platforms? Again, that's an open question. Would Sony permit having Game Pass on their platform when they already have PlayStation now? Would Nintendo permit having Game Pass available on their hardware? I suspect not, personally. But, hey, okay, maybe we can't sell you, we can't let you play Starfield on PS5 through Game Pass, but what if we just sell you Starfield for $70 on PS5. Well, let's face it, as far as Microsoft are concerned, that's win-win. Because if they can get Game Pass on the PlayStation, then they can get more signups and bring more people into the Xbox ecosystem. But if they can't, and they can just sell you Starfield for $70 on PS5, well, they're still making money. And they're going to make more money because now all these games that people were interested in, but potentially wouldn't have went out and bought a PC or bought an Xbox to play because they're very much entrenched in the PS5 ecosystem or the Switch ecosystem or the Switch 2 whenever it happens, they'll buy their game there instead. And so they can have their cake and eat it. So none of this strikes me as the death of Xbox in any real way. I heard some people comparing it to the likes of the um, era in Sega in which they stepped down from hardware manufacturing during the Sega Dreamcast, long live the Dreamcast, best console evs, and then moved into publishing. And people are now worried, oh, it's the death of Xbox. I don't think so, because I feel that for Microsoft, they still want to have their own dedicated home, their platform where their games go. Do their games go there early? Maybe. Are their games day one available in Game Pass? Yes but they could also then just publish them on other platforms as well. So I'll be interested to see how this rolls out. I strongly suspect that we're probably going to see more and more Xbox titles um, or Xbox Game Studios titles published on the likes of Sony and Nintendo hardware in the future. And um, 
yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Alrighty. <clears throat> Quick one, because I thought this was really fun. There was a conversation bouncing around. Um, uh, this is a story that was dropped over in Video Games Chronicle about Capcom uh, over on their uh, dedicated uh, fan site actually put out a poll for people on whether they wanted to see more sequels or remakes of lapsed series. And uh, this included whether or not they wanted to see remakes of things like Onimusha, Ace Attorney, Rival Schools, and even the, the very early Mega Man games, or whether or not they wanted to see new entries of a variety of franchises that they own, such as uh, Darkstalkers, Okami, Onimusha, Ace Attorney, Street Fighter, Dino Crisis, Dead Rising, Devil May Cry, Dragon's, Dobka, Dra Dragon's Dogma, I'll say that again, the Versus Capcom series, Resident Evil, Final Fight, Breath of Fire, Ghost and Goblins, Monster Hunter, Lost Planet, Mega Man, and 1942. Clearly, Capcom are on a bit of a, a, a hot streak the last few years. They've successfully managed to build up their you know, the the Resident Evil franchise once again after its potential demise almost after Resident Evil 6. 7 brought it back in an interesting way. Then we've had the remakes of 2, 3 and 4 as well as Resident Evil Village. And so it's been going from strength to strength. Monster Hunter World and Rise have been very well received. Dragon's Dogma 2 is not that far away. Street Fighter 6 has done very well. They're on a hot streak and I think they're tr they're now I think like a lot of other Japanese publishers looking at what IP have we got in the back that we have not really been utilising successfully in recent years. I mean, we did have a Devil May Cry a few years ago, but things like Onimusha, Okami and um, Darkstalkers have been left to rot. Uh, critically, also Mega Man, we did have a new Mega Man a couple of years ago, but the Mega Man X series has been left dormant. The versus Capcom franchise, I feel it is long overdue a revival. We did have Marvel vs. Capcom Infinite uh, a few years ago, which sadly wasn't very good at all. <clears throat> and I say that as a, a big fan of that, that, that series. Uh, I'm trying to remember when that actually came out. Oh, wow, that was 2017. Wow, I didn't realise it was that long ago. That game was crushingly disappointing. Um after the really strong Marvel versus Capcom 3, but also there's a lot of other um, really good versus games or uh, sub-series that Capcom have explored over the years. So there was the Capcom versus SNK many years ago. That was really good. Um, we had uh, even Tatsunoko versus Capcom, which was the anime, uh, anime characters versus Capcom fighters, uh, which was on the Wii. And as someone who didn't really know most of the Tatsunoko characters, I still had a great time with it. It was really good fun. I feel like they need to get back into doing the versus fighting games. They've often they have been a, they've they've often been very well celebrated, even among the fighting game community as well. And uh, yeah, more Resident Evil. I think we can guarantee is on the way. There is already we know there's a new Monster Hunter coming. So, yeah, I'll be interested to see what influence this has on, like, subsequent games going forward. <clears throat> uh, next up, another little story that dropped from uh, The Hollywood Reporter was a United SAG-AFTRA, uh, uh, I always say AFTA, SAG-AFTA, SAG-AFTRA agreement for indie games. Um, and this was 
particularly of interest because it's a new tiered budget agreement designed to offer union coverage for voice actors in indie video games. So indie, I think it's under 15 million, I think, is what's classified as, as indie. I think that was the, the classification they had. Um, and it essentially contains provisions, especially on AI, that will allow for voice actor or indie studios to operate and adopt AI technology as part of voice acting um, uh, that is conformant with SAG-AFTRA's expectations. Now, there was already something, if you recall, of course, the SAG-AFTRA strike in 2023, a big part of that was about, you know, pay deals and remuneration for actors in their own film and television, but there was also a part of it that was related to games. And a big part of that was also related to the use of artificial intelligence technology in writing and in performance, critically whether or not people are going to be summarily compensated if they attempt to try and use AI versions of someone's voice and what are their rights, the, the, the actual actors, what rights do they have to the performances that are attached to those kind of AI voices and the like. So <clears throat> this uh, this interim, this agreement essentially allows members to work on independent projects and it was like they did. They did the same thing during the, the film and TV strike. There was a interim agreement which allowed members to work on independent projects during the, the film and TV strike under a certain budget that didn't have to worry about it being in violation. Because, of course, everybody who was striking is saying, right, well, you know, you can't go into certain projects because the union is, is against it. And, of course, people want to support the union. So now the, they had this in place for particularly for smaller projects that, we're going to, and this was like an interim agreement that was said, okay, we're being compliant. They have something now similar um, for smaller independent video game projects with the idea that there is then going to be a new deal that will eventually be put together for larger projects. And it's still, at the moment, there is still an ongoing conversation between SAG-AFTRA and a lot of the AAA video gaming industry as to regards remuneration rights and the adoption of AI in and around voice actors for video games and performance capture artists for video games as well. I feel like this is going to be an interesting story that's still going to play out a little bit um, over the coming months. And I think it's something to keep an eye on because this will also be a huge indicator on how AI is adopted in so many facets of game production, particularly generative AI, uh, in the coming years based on what is agreed between SAG-AFTRA and the larger gaming industry. All right. The last one that comes to mind, the last story that I thought I'd bring up and talk about, is the Walt Disney Company is making a $1.5 billion investment to acquire an equity stake in Epic Games, the creators of Fortnite. So this was last week, and uh, courtesy of a story that again published over on Video Games Chronicle, uh, that it said on Wednesday that the two companies are partnering to create an, quote, all-new games and entertainment universe connected to Fortnite. Uh, quote, in addition to being a world-class game experience and interoperating with Fortnite, the new persistent universe will offer a multitude of opportunities for consumers to play, watch, shop, and engage with content, characters, and stories from Disney, Pixar, Marvel, Star Wars, Avatar, and more. So, none of this is... I mean, none of this is terribly surprising. Disney's back in games again. Disney, if you've been following for a long time, Disney float in and out of games. They will heavily invest in games and then they get spooked and they pull out of it and then they license an awful lot. Then they get excited again and invest more into it. If you've been around for a good 15, 20 years, then you'll have seen 
you know, back in the Xbox 360 era, Disney owned several game studios and then shut them all down. Then they came back a few years later, they licensed a few IPs here and there to big AAAs, and then they heavily invested in the likes of Disney Infinity, which was developed by Avalanche. And of course, that was huge for them. They, they really enjoyed it, but of course, it's also expensive to do and, def- and expensive to maintain. And then they got spooked by it because it didn't make as much money as they wanted, so they pulled out. Remember that like hot minute from 2013 to 2016 where you were just besieged by Disney Infinity figures? I mean, even I had a fair share of them kicking around. I still have a couple somewhere. I've got a couple of the Marvel ones, and I've got a Buzz Lightyear, if I remember right. But then they got cold on it again, and they went back into licensing. You know, you look at all the, the Marvel stuff in the last few years and Star Wars games whether it's EA or it's Ubisoft now with the Star Wars license, the Marvel license is bouncing around Sony, it's bouncing around um, Square Enix, and uh, now Xbox as well, what with the um, Blade game that's in development too. Plus, of course, you know, Wolverine and Insomniac after Spider-Man 2 dropped. And they've got more on the way. So it feels like this is them trying to find ways to connect with audiences and they're really looking at what is happening with Epic and Fortnite and particularly Fortnite is really the only metaverse that's actually working. Except maybe Roblox. Is Roblox a metaverse? I'm not sure. Either way, they're really, really interested in finding a solid new avenue within which to engage with players and fans and get them invested in Disney IP whether it's Star Wars or Marvel or, you know, Pixar, even if it's something like ESPN, you know, hey, like get engaged with the Super Bowl on ESPN in Fortnite. You know, they want new ways to continue to interact and engage with with audiences. And so this feels like they're back on that that road again. And they're they're hoping to that they they think that Epic Games and particularly Fortnite is the way to go forward with that. And probably at the moment that is the smartest move to make because frankly, when you look at a lot of these other multiverse spaces, uh, metaverse spaces rather, there's there's not really much else going on. And there's not really anything you know, I don't think really any of the other ones are, are actually worth hedging your bets against. So, you know, on one hand it's it's a big surprise that they're doing something like this. Um, but also I think Epic Games will be quite happy to take their money and find ways to utilise it in a in a myriad of interesting ways. I mean, it'll be worth checking out. I'll be interested to see <clears throat> um, where this all comes out. And just as uh, we're about to wrap up, I just saw a new story just dropped. Earth Defence Force 6's Western release has been delayed from spring to summer of 2024. Ah, that's that's crushing. Um, in fact, it was supposed to have a, a release date in March and uh, developer Sandlot, this is over on Video Games Chronicle, um, developer Sandlot and publisher D3 have decided to extend the launch window to add finishing touches and finalise preparations for its uh, Western launch, the company said on Monday. No new release date has been announced. Ah, I was really looking forward to being able to play that. Um, but at the same time, and you know, I've made a video about this over on AI and Games. If you're like, what's Earth Defense Force? Go and watch that. I love it. It's very jank, but it's so much love. I have, I have so much love for that game. It's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, it's been delayed. That's a shame. But um, it, I guess that means I'll probably just be playing more of Helldivers 2 while I'm waiting. 
Alrighty. Well, that's the news, and that's everything I think I was really going to cover today. Uh, we've actually got some guests lined up coming on the ch- onto the, the podcast in the coming weeks and months, but we had a bit of downtime in between guests and also co-hosts, so I thought today I'm just going to uh, sit and chat with you all myself and talk through a whole bunch of the stuff that's going down. And amazingly, well, we've been able to, after having a lot of trouble with it last year, or last week, rather, last year, man, I'm tired. We managed to successfully stream this the whole time while I've been talking. So over on Twitch. So I'm really happy with that. So thanks everyone for tuning in. Thank you, of course, for listening to the Branching Factor podcast. We'll be back very soon. Uh, Hopefully going to have another couple of guests with us coming over towards the end of the month. And uh, yeah, stick around for more of our more musings and more ramblings in and around video games. And uh, be sure to check out the links in the show notes description, particularly if you're interested in the summer school as well as the Game AI Uncovered book. All right, with that, I'm going to wrap it up. Thank you so much for, for watching and listening. Take care of yourselves, and we'll be back with another episode very soon. Woohoo! Let's go! The Branching Factor podcast is hosted and produced by me, Tommy Thompson, with support from Anne Sullivan, George Osborne, Mike Cook, and Quang Yoon. Our theme music is provided courtesy of Ben Ridge. The logo and thumbnail are is thanks to Helen O'Dell. Special thanks to Shraddha Gupta and Phoebe Trigg for additional production support. And of course, to all of you out there listening. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Branching Factor. Wherever you are in the world, be sure to stay safe, have fun, and we will be back.